This podcast is brought to you by Bruner Communications, your best resource for public speaking, presentation, and storytelling skills. Visit lizbruner.com and take your skills to the next level. Resilience, purpose, passion, three words of many that describe my guest today. He is perhaps the most widely known as the most decorated monoskier in U.S. history, who went on to become the fastest in the world. If that's not enough, as a paraplegic, he hand-cycled in a wheelchair all the way up to the summit of Mount Kilimanjaro. Whew, hello, and welcome to Live Your Best Life with Liz Bruner. I'm Liz, and I am truly honored today to introduce to you Chris Waddell. Chris, welcome to my podcast. Thank you, Liz. It's an honor to be here, and I look forward to a great story. Well, you're the great story. That's why you're here. I'm so excited. Your parents taught you how to ski very young age, and it was on a man-made snow mountain just outside of Boston. And by the time you were 13 years old, you were the best in the region. But then everything changed your freshman year at Middlebury College. What happened? I started racing when I was six years old at Little Mount Tom, 680 feet of vertical. <laughs> and, and it was the sport where I really felt like I could, I could learn something every single run. And it was aspirational. I could always see people who are better than me. And, but then it was also where I had my greatest defeats you know, as an individual sport. Sometimes you win and a lot of times you don't win. And that can be totally crushing in trying to figure out how to continue to move forward. And when I went to Middlebury, I felt like, okay, this is leaving childhood. This is eventually going to be on my own. And can I use skiing to prove to myself that I have what it takes to be successful, that I have what it takes to find that, that strength, that power within me. And in dryland training, I, I push myself every day to the point where I felt like I wanted to quit. Because if I push myself to the point that I wanted to quit and then move beyond it, then it was creating a new possibility, a potential new narrative. My first day of Christmas vacation, we had graduated from Little Mount Tom to a little bit bigger Berkshire East out on Route 2, uh, which is about a thousand feet of vertical, and went up there with my brother and some buddies. And we took a couple of runs, and in the middle of a turn, my ski popped off. As we were warming up, we weren't training, ski popped off. That's all I remember. Nobody saw it. They came down, and I was conscious, but I was in shock, so that's why I don't remember it. Basically, we figured out that. I really had just kind of fallen in the middle of the trail. Just a weird fall, but I broke two vertebrae and damaged the spinal cord, became paralyzed. And, you know, I was looking for like, you know, trying to solve the biggest problems in my life, I guess, you know, I mean, this is it. Like, okay, anytime I solve a problem, that's making me more prepared to be able to perform on the hill. And suddenly I had a problem that I hadn't really, hadn't really planned for. No. And your doctors end up telling you, you're never going to walk again. What's your first reaction when they tell you that, especially for someone like yourself who's solution-oriented? Well, actually, the, the interesting part was that the doctors told my parents and told my brother, and there was such finality to that. The mm. doctor was lacking a bit in terms of bedside manner. I was going through all these tests. The doctor finally came out and said, your son, your brother's broken his back and he'll never walk again. And then essentially turned and left. And so for them, they were like, oh, okay, well, what do we do? How do we make this happen? It was obviously super emotional. My parents are ridiculously resilient. And so they all cried. And when they were done, my father said, that's the last time we can cry. We have to be strong for Chris. 
That, I think, throughout my life was what allowed me to have the security to go and perform, to go and fail and know that, that they were there supporting and that they were always going to be there. They protected me from that after school, you know, movie kind of moment of like, you broke your back, you'll never walk again, your life is over kind of thing. Mm. And there was a fair amount of denial. As an athlete, I was like, well, you, you don't know me. Obviously, that there are some issues here, but I'm going to find a way to be successful. I think there's self-preservation in that denial to a certain extent. It was the thing that allowed me to gain some momentum, to believe. Optimism is something that is such a huge part of being healthy. Mm -hmm. and, and I call it realizing possible. It's kind of like winning that moment with yourself in the moment mm -hmm. where the chemical reaction, the instinct is to panic, is to rage. And I recognized that I couldn't really let that happen because my thoughts and my emotions were so connected to my body's ability to heal because there's nothing else I could do, was just sort of give it the best opportunity to heal. But did you ever ask yourself, why me? You can't help but sort of be in a position when something big like this happens to go, okay, like, what do I believe in? Right. Like, have I done something wrong? Is there a sense of karma? Am I being punished for something? Those thoughts did go through my head, but it was also, I recognized that I had to recover mm -hmm. and that those thoughts really weren't going to help me. I, I was surrounded in the trauma unit by people who had experienced some of the worst stuff in life. And I knew that was not a place I wanted to be. I didn't want to stay there. Mm -hmm. It was almost like the competition was all of these things that are happening around me, these thoughts of like, did I do something wrong? And that's, that's why this happened to me. Those things were like my competition. Yeah. Like not letting them infiltrate and effectively make me weaker, effectively keep me from being who I was. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you've ever spent any time in the hospital. People come to visit you and they feel a ridiculous obligation yeah. to like, you know, the one for the Gipper speech kind of thing or whatever. You know, they've got to make everything right. And obviously they can't. And so I was in a position where I actually had to put them at ease. They came to comfort me. <laughs> but in a lot of cases, I had to put them at ease, you know, and say, oh, don't worry, don't worry. it's going to be okay. It's, it's, we're working through this. It's all going to be good, which is funny because one of the things that you lose when you have this kind of a traumatic issue is you lose your sense of empowerment. This whole recovery process took quite some time, but literally within a year, you are back on the mountain as a monoskier, and you had to relearn how to ski. And you had done this your entire life. So what was the hardest part about relearning how to ski? And what was that first run down the mountain like for you? Well, first run, you're giving me a lot more credit than I deserve. <laughs> well, you went down somehow. <laughs> because I really, I didn't make a turn that first day at all. I'd never seen a monoski. I'd never seen anybody skiing a monoski. I had an expert's experience. I'd ski raced for 15 years. I was good enough to know that I wasn't great, but I was pretty good. You know, I had a pretty I'd decent say, idea yeah. of what I was supposed <laughs> to do. Getting into a monoski, I was a complete beginner. You know, it was like translating into a foreign language while holding my breath underwater kind of thing and trying to do the whole thing in America. <laughs> I, I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know where I'm going. I had to think myself down every inch of the mountain. And the stuff that I had taken for granted where you get off the lift and you kind of slide to a stop and put your goggles on, buckle your boots and you go, 
that part was was the most challenging part, like just getting off the lift, getting to the point where you never even thought about getting to that point before. Yeah. And so I was in conscious thought and conscious thought is exhausting. I mean, we build our lives in bigger and bigger blocks. And so we can sort of coast through this part of life and then, okay, now we have to think about this and then we coast through and we don't, we don't think about what we're doing as we're walking down the street or something like that. Mm -hmm. And this was sort of the equivalent for me. So it was the most exhausting thing that I ever did. I didn't make it down the hill that first day. When I finally did make it down the hill, I think I went back to Mount Tom and I think it took an hour to take a run that would have taken, I don't know, like minute, minute and a half or something like Mm. that before. And and I got to the bottom and we said, well, do you want to go back up? And I thought, Hold on a second. Like, <laughs> like, just give me a break for a second. Like, like, I need to catch my breath. I need to sort of cleanse my brain here. It, it was super difficult because I knew what I was supposed to do. I just didn't know how to do it. And there's that little kernel of worry of, will I ever be able to do it? And I was trying not to give that any voice. Mm-hmm. And luckily, the weird part, I barely made it down the hill. And the next day I came back and it was like I was 100% better. Wow. Well, maybe I was infinitely better because I went really from zero to something, right? <laughs> to something, so I guess right? that's, that's 100%. If I remember any of my math, I think that's like infinitely better. And things started happening, like my body started understanding what it was supposed to do, which was one of the coolest things. Yeah. As an adult, we don't give ourselves the recognition of the things that we've learned. I mean, like thinking about like learning to walk, how miraculous is that to go from like this lump of baby to actually being able to walk? And we've all done it. We're speaking, you know, like learning to talk is the same kind of thing. And I got to see that in skiing yes. where I got to go from effectively the lump of baby to like, oh, wow, like I can balance and then I can sort of turn and then I can turn better. And it was the hardest and coolest thing that I've been through you ultimately become the fastest in the world. Talk about learning how to ski again. And you compete in seven Paralympic Games, earning 13 medals in alpine skiing and track and field, cementing truly your place as one of Team USA's most successful two-sport athletes and a Paralympic Hall of Famer, I might add. And on top of that, somewhere along the way, you decide after skiing that you are going to reach the summit of Mount Kilimanjaro, the tallest mountain in the world. Now, Chris, for any... Well, not in Africa. Well, okay. But for any able-bodied person, climbing Mount Kilimanjaro is a feat in and of itself. You have a wonderful documentary called One Revolution, and it is about your journey up to the summit of Mount Kilimanjaro. And I watched it. I encourage people to watch it. It is absolutely amazing. So where did this idea come from and why did you feel so strongly about taking on this challenge? Literally, it sort of like bubbled up inside of me. I was out riding my off-road hand cycle up a mountain bike trail. And this is after I'd retired from competitive sport. And retiring from competitive sport was actually the most traumatic thing that I've experienced in my life. I lost my identity way more than I did after breaking my back, after paralyzing myself. Why do you think that is? That was partially because I'd lost my, my purpose. Mm. I'd lost my voice. I'd suddenly become an ordinary person in my life, you know, or like an ordinary person in a wheelchair, really. Like I'd become that guy in a wheelchair. 
as opposed to someone who could go 70 miles an hour on one ski, who was affecting the way that you saw me, mm -hmm. but also hopefully 1.2 billion people in the world, 15% of the population, who in a lot of ways are invisible because from the time we're little, we're taught not to stare at someone who looks different. Mm -hmm. It's impolite to stare. If we don't get a chance to ask questions, people are effectively invisible. And I wanted to stretch your imagination not just about me and the 1.2 billion people in the world, but I also wanted to stretch your imagination about yourself. Mm -hmm. With my foundation, our mission is to turn perception of disability upside down. And it's really easy to couch that in saying we're talking about physical disability. You know, somebody who can't walk, somebody who's missing a leg, somebody who can't see, whatever it is, right? But disability is really that thing that stands between us and what we want to do. My intention is to be as universal as possible. That's why our motto is, it's not what happens to you, it's what you do with what happens to you, because mm -hmm. things are going to happen. And sometimes smaller, seemingly smaller things can have a far bigger effect based on how we look at it. So I felt like as an athlete, I had an opportunity to affect how people saw the world. Mm -hmm. And after I retired, I didn't feel like I had that opportunity anymore. And you had so many moments of doubt vulnerability, and you had to make a very difficult decision for you, which was to accept help. You did not want to do that. And you did. You had to. I had to. You know, the mountain is something that we all understand. We're all climbing a mountain, right? We're all Sisyphus on some level, pushing that boulder up the mountain. I needed that context for people to say, oh, that's, that's kind of like me. The only way to be universal is to be as honest as possible. If I try to tell you what you're supposed to get out of my story, then you'll go, oh, okay, that seems fine. But if I'm as honest as possible and tell you what happened, then you go, oh, something really very similar happened to me in my life. As Americans, and we're taught to be John Wayne in a lot of ways, right? <laughs> we can do whatever we want to do. Like We don't need any help from anybody, right? And, and the fact of the matter is, one, we probably do need help. Two, we're cutting ourselves off from a lot of strength in our lives, from the ability to interact with people, but also the ability to empower other people. I mean, our struggle is the thing that often empowers the people around us. Mm -hmm. People want to join that struggle. If they see you genuinely struggling, they want to help. They want to be a part of it. In the moment, I thought, oh, no, we, we spent two years trying to get to the top of the mountain, and now I've failed all these people. And where do we go from here? It was as, as human as anything, and it really allowed me to be myself. Yeah. I'd spent a lot of time trying to fulfill the fantasy of being a superhero, mm. which I felt is what people wanted me to be mm. because, oh, you're my inspiration. I'm like, okay, that's all well and good, but I'm a human too. We all need people. And inspiration surrounds us, right? I mean, it's yes. one of those things that it's not just one person. If we open our eyes, we look around and see, wow, okay, that person is inspirational. And that person, this is an amazing song. Some kid who had learned to tie his shoes or something like that. You know, you go, wow, that's what's inspirational. Is somebody who couldn't do something who now can do something or finds a way to capture that moment. You have a number of books, but the one I want to talk about that I had a chance to read last week is Things I Want to Remember Not to Forget. <laughs> You share a wonderful story in there about a six-year-old little girl who's riding by on her bike, and she stops. And she asks you, what happened to your legs? And a moment ago, you just talked about that being invisible piece. Why is it so important for people to ask you what happened? I think that, one, we learn from each other. 
the people who've been through the most are the ones who have the best stories to tell and the best lessons. And the second part is, well, what did you do? And the what did you do part is the part that we can learn from. Mm -hmm. It's the part that we can go, okay, that might not have been the way that I would have reacted in that situation, but suddenly I've learned something. Mm -hmm. You know, it's why we read books. It's why we watch movies. It's, it's the Bible. It's these things. We learn from those experiences. We learn from myths and legends. And if we try to do it all on our own, we don't have the capacity to have enough experience right. to actually be prepared. But if we learn from other people, we're going to have a far better chance, I think. I want to go back to part of your recovery, because a couple months after your accident, you thought, you, hey, I'm, I'm ready to go back to college. I'm ready to go back to classes. And your doctor said, no, you're not. He didn't think you were ready to leave because, in his words, you hadn't been depressed yet, which obviously you thought it was quite perplexing. And it was 17 years later, at the age of 36, during your final Paralympic Games, that you finally experienced depression over your accident. What do you make of that today? You would think that when the traumatic accident happens, that that's when you would be depressed. But what it does is it, is it shifts the story. The obvious part of like what I lost. And you go, oh, you should lament the loss of your ability to walk, your ability to run. But what made it depressing afterwards was really the loss of a sense of purpose. Yeah. I think that my purpose was really clear after my accident is that I didn't want to be seen as this guy in the, in the wheelchair. I wanted to stretch people's imagination. And, and it wasn't just about me. I think that prior to that, you know, I was a 20-year-old kid, right? So I think it probably was all about me beforehand. <laughs> but suddenly I, I, I lost that sense of purpose. I lost that sense of passion. That's the beautiful part of our journey. Mm -hmm. If we're getting better, if we're even getting better just incrementally, there's that endorphin rush. There's that thing that's so cool that wants you to do more. But when you stop... Then it feels so stagnant. I mean, that effectively is when we're dying, when we're decaying. Yeah. Entropy. I mean, this is the beginning of the end. And that's why it's, it still is perplexing. And I think that it, it is having a plan of what it means to continue to move forward because we have to find something that we love because then we pour ourselves into that. Well, the Dalai Lama named you an unsung hero of compassion. <laughs> And People Magazine put you on the list of the 50 most beautiful people. Quite some accolades, Chris. And now that you have officially retired from competitive skiing, you are so busy as a motivational speaker all over the world, and you're running your One Revolution Foundation with a mission, as you mentioned earlier, of turning the perception of disability upside down. And I know you have a wonderful program called Name Tags. I want you to share with us more about that. So Name Tags is our educational program. It's an assembly-based program. During COVID, I took a little bit of a right turn and did them virtually as well. So we do assembly and virtual presentations. It's about getting beyond the limitations, the labels and limitations that we put on ourselves and others. Mm -hmm. You know, this I can't do this because I'm not smart enough. I'm not, you know, I'm not rich enough. I'm not, you know, whatever. I'm not fast enough. We're really good at having that excuse, that reason why we can't. Right. As I said, our motto is it's not what happens to you, it's what you do, it's what happens to you. When we do the assembly programs, we split the room in half and have one side say, it's not what happens to you. And the other side chants back, it's what you do with what happens to you. Mm -hmm. To me, it seems like going through school and going through life, oftentimes we're kind of taught to get in line and not really 
make any waves because it makes other people nervous. Mm -hmm. But if we do something that's different, we might well find what really matters to us and what we have to contribute to the rest of the world. My objective is to empower the kids to realize that the greatest risk they take is taking no risk at all. If they don't take a risk, they might not be fulfilled. And what's the risk? Mm -hmm. The risk is how many seemingly successful adults out there are miserable and feel trapped in their lives. And sometimes it's an easy excuse, right, to be the victim because sure. there's somebody to blame. To be proactive and say, this is who I want to be, this is what I want to do, then ultimately, if there's a problem, you have to pick up the pieces and find a way to mm. move forward because there's nobody to blame. It seems far more filling. So that's the message we're trying to, trying to give to the kids. Yeah. You're so goal-oriented. What's the next challenge? Mount Kilimanjaro again? <laughs> Not going back to Kilimanjaro again, okay, but <laughs> Kilimanjaro is a great metaphor for all of the challenges. Right now, I'm actually in the process of creating a television show that I've wanted to create for a long time, which is called Chris Waddell Living. It originally was called I Wish I Could. It's an expert with a disability teaching an adventure to an able-bodied person. What we want to do is flip the paradigm of what it means to be an expert. I hear it all the time, like when I ski, wow, you're, you're better on one ski than I am on two, you know, to which I often say, I know, uh, <laughs> but that it's easy for us to paint our world and say, oh, this person should be better than that person based on that. We are such an underdog-oriented world where we love the success of the underdog. And we are all underdogs, really, in our story. And the underdog is the one that finds a way to be successful. And to me, that's what really needs to be celebrated is trying to find that way to develop the expertise to perfect our craft. Because that's probably as much as anything our job in life is to find a way to perfect our craft because we have to perfect ourselves. We have to find a way to work within ourselves in order to do that. Oh, wonderful. Folks, if you'd like to learn more about Chris, his books, his podcast, his foundation, all you need to do is go to his two different websites. One is called chriswaddellinc.com and onerevolution.org. We're going to have both of those links and his social media handles in our show notes. Chris, I can't tell you how much it meant to me to have you here today and to share with us that while your accident may have robbed you of your ability to walk, it literally brought you to the top of the world. But as a result, you are changing the world in wonderful and beautiful ways. And I really appreciate you sharing that with us today. Thank you. Thank you, Liz. It's my honor. And thank you for giving me the opportunity to share my story. Delighted to do so. And thanks to all of you for listening. Please write a review, share this podcast with your friends and family. And in Chris's words, may I remind you, remember not to forget that it's not what happens to you, it's what you do with what happens to you. May all of you be inspired to live your best life. Until next time, be well. This podcast is brought to you in part by Fast Twitch Media, helping people tell their stories and giving them worldwide reach. The future is in the cloud and Fast Twitch Media can take you there. Be your best digital self. Check out fasttwitchmedia.space.